Young, back to throw. In trouble, he's going to be sacked. No, gets away. He runs, gets away again, goes to the 40, gets away again, to the 35, cuts back at the 30, to the 20, the 50, the 10. He dies, touchdown, 49ers. What's up, 49ers fans? It is another episode of the 49ers Web Zone No Huddle Podcast. I am Zane Nackvi. Al couldn't be with us this week. He is out for the week, and we hope Al gets a speedy recovery, not feeling not feeling well, feeling under the weather. I'm feeling a bit under the weather because the A's lost to the Yankees, and I'm sure Al is happy about that. He gets to rub it in my face next time, but hey, that's okay. Anyways, back to the 49ers. The Niners suffered another defeat at the hands of the Chargers this past week, and it was another close game, another game where one or two plays could have gone either way, and it, and it shifted the course of the game. And the 49ers, are, offensively, they're there. I feel like they're really kind of starting to hit their stride. Obviously, the loss to Jimmy Garoppolo and, and Jarek McKinnon before the season put a monkey wrench into all of that. But now with C.J. Beathard in this current group, they seem to really have, be having some sort of a rhythm. And you saw that in the first half of the game on Sunday. And really, it comes down to whether they can maintain this throughout the, the course of the entire season. Right now, 49ers are ranked 12th in points and 20, 21st in yards on offense. And that's not indicative of how well they've played. And that's not indicative of how well they can play. I really feel like with a little bit of luck here and there, dropped passes, turning into catches and injuries and things like that going the 49ers way, they could be a much better offense than they are right now. That being said, again, 12th in the league in points, they're scoring enough to win. But really, it's the defense that's letting them down right now. They're 27th in the league in defense, and that's not going to cut it. And on top of that, you are not getting to the quarterback. The leading person on defense who has, who has the most number of sacks is DeForest Buckner. He has three, but everybody else besides him has no more than a, a, a one and a half sacks. They have eight as a, as a unit through four games. And really, it comes down to not only the pass rush, but also the tackling in itself. The 49ers lead the league in, in missed tackles. And that's a fundamental thing that you learn in training camp. That's something that you learn First week, getting back, the pads on, they're hitting each other. You should be getting all of these things taken care of in the offseason. And I don't know what happened during training camp, and I don't know what's contributing to, frankly, the laziness of the missed tackles. They were a little bit better in the first half. They, they didn't miss as many. But then on one play in the second half, I counted five missed tackles when the 49ers were trying to tackle Melvin Gordon. And it's just, the guys are throwing shoulders into them. They're, they're reaching. They're not wrapping up they're not breaking down like just fundamental things that you learn when you learn how to tackle they're not executing those things and i'm not sure if that's a systemic problem or a talent problem or if robert solid taught them to be too aggressive we're not really sure what what's going on there but what we can really know for sure is the fact that these guys have to get better in order to win games and every single advanced metric and statistic says that they're worse than they were last year. This was a defense that was up and coming in the, in the, in the last few games last year when Jimmy became the start the full-time starter. And this year they seem to have regressed. And some of those statistics are tracked by pro football focus. And one of the, the people that we'll talk to about that or in our guest today is Jeff Dini from pro football focus. He covers the 49ers has a lot of information and without further ado, here is Jeff. Our guest today comes by way of Pro Football Focus as the 49ers media correspondent. You can find him on Twitter at PFF underscore Jeff. He is Jeff Dini. Jeff, thanks for joining the show, man. How you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. 
I, I think that both of us, given the fact that you're a Cubs fan and I'm an A's fan, uh, given the events of earlier this week, where we've probably been better, huh? <laughs> yeah, this has not been a good baseball week. I pretty much uh, had turned off baseball for a while. I mean, the Cubs had the best record in the National League on Sunday and then uh, lost two games, one Monday, one Tuesday. Now their season's done. So, uh, yeah, not a happy camper here. Yeah, it was that was I mean, I stayed up to watch that game and I was like, man, this this is an exciting game. And I'm like, there's no way that the Cubs and the A's get eliminated on back to back nights. Right. And then here we are. <laughs> yeah, that was a long, painful five hour, 13 inning death. Yeah. Yeah. But hey, at least you, you got 2016. You've got the You got the championship. Uh, the A's have not won one in 30 years. We're still we're still looking for one. Um, but they broke the curse. Right. That's that's what matters. Yeah, I mean, it was a lot easier to take now that they've won one. I mean, going back a ways, I, my, my wife and I were actually at the Bartman game in 2003 when that happened. Oh, uh, no. So, um, we, we've suffered quite a bit before they finally won one. So it's a little easier to take after they finally broke the curse. Yeah, now we just have to rely on the Astros pretty much to dispatch the Dodgers and the Yankees and the Red Sox and everybody, and, and, and we're good, right? And then we can hope for like a Dodgers-Brewers World Series or something, maybe? Yeah? <laughs> Absolutely. And I think the, Bre- the Brewers, I think, are the team to be in the National League. They, they've just been so hot the last couple of weeks. And that was the other thing with the Cubs. I just, you know, they had a lot of injuries. Their bullpen was on fumes. And I just, even if they had gotten to the division series, I think they would have had a hard time getting full, going through. So, um, you know, it is what it is. But, yeah, I think the Brewers – the team to be in the NL, and then we'll see what happens. I think whoever's in the American League is probably going to win anyway, whether it's the Red Sox, the Yankees, or the Astros. But uh, it should be interesting. Yeah, most likely. I, I kind of just want one of the, the little guys to win, just because as an A's fan, you know, exactly. all these the powerhouses always winning all the time. The Cubs were a nice story, so I was obviously naturally cheering for the Cubs. And and my wife is also from Chicago as well, so I've I've got a special affinity for the city of Chicago. So that was that was nice when they when they won. Yeah, and of course the Cubs have kind of become one of those powerhouses now that they're spending money left and right. But uh, yeah. yeah, it's nice to see whether it's Houston or Oakland. Or some of these teams are not spending three hundred millions of dollars, three hundred million dollars a year to win one for a change. Yeah, exactly. All right, Jeff. So let's get into the Niners. So what's what's happening with the Niners now? Everybody sees that Jimmy post Jimmy Garoppolo. I like to call it uh, PG now post Garoppolo this <laughs> season, and uh, we're we're looking at at how they've seriously regressed on the defensive side of the ball. They only have one interception on the year. They have eight sacks, and, and DeForest Buckner is responsible for three of those. They lead the league in missed tackles. They struggled again last week in the second half to bring down Melvin Gordon. What differences do you see between last year's defense, who looked like they were up and coming, and this year's defense, who looked like they're lost? Yeah, I mean, I think you mentioned, I mean, they're leading the league in missed tackles. I mean, that's one big problem. I mean, that's one thing you see from now compared to, like, you know, five years, you look at the defenses, you know, under Harbaugh and Fangio, like in, you know, 2011, 12, and 13, and they were always, you know, at the top of the league as far as, like, lowest missed tackles. They were always, you know, and this is just the opposite. I mean, they've, I mean, that's one thing that's just, 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 you know, jumps out on tape is just the missed tackles. They, they got 51 through four weeks, which is by far the most in the league. Um, mm. Really, I mean, I, I don't think it's so much a scheme issue. I mean, this is the same scheme that, you know, Seattle and Jacksonville run for the most part, and obviously, well, maybe not so much this year with the Seahawks, but I mean, those are two of the best defenses in the league the last couple of years. But I think that and just execution, you saw, I mean, I think Antonio Gates touched down the, the other day where he was just completely wide open. They blew the coverage with, mm-hmm. it was Foster. I can't remember if it was Witherspoon or the other corner was over there. They mixed up coverages. And I think just things like that where they're just not executing. I don't know if that's just a sign of youth or just inexperience or what it is. I mean, obviously they got some injuries. You know, Richard Sherman had actually a pretty good start the few, first few weeks. You know, he's out. Um, 
you do see some guys regressing. I mean, Akilah Willerson looked really good last year's rookie year, and you know everyone kind of thought he was going to break out, and you know Richard Sherman taking him under his wing, and he's really had a rough start this year. Where you know some of that I think might be health related, but you know, he's been benched at times. Um, there's just aside like you mentioned, aside from just DeForest Buckner, there's just very little pass rush. I mean, you know that's the one nit I think if you look at offseason moves that they really made no attempt to shore up the pass rush. I mean, they signed a tattoo, didn't even make the roster, but, uh, you know, Elvis Sumerville retired. He was, you know, efficient as a third down guy last year. Um, he doesn't come back, you know, Atachi doesn't make the roster. They didn't draft anybody at that position. You know, Eli Harrell wasn't a guy who rushed the passer too much, but he got traded away. Um, and really Cassius Marsh hasn't really done anything. I think he's had about a hundred and I'm trying to look at the number, but he had like 110 or 115 pass rushes so far this year. And, no sacks, one QB hit. So they're not mm-hmm. really getting anything off the edge. Obviously, Solomon Thomas, when he's rushing off the edge, isn't giving them much either. So, you know, they're not really getting a lot of heat on the quarterback. They're not blitzing a whole lot except for a little bit early in the San Diego game, which was effective for a while before Rivers and the Chargers adjusted. But they're not really getting much of a pass rush. They've been banged up in the secondary, and the guys have been out there really haven't been performing. So you mentioned the secondary and the blown coverages and blown assignments. Can this be kind of attributed to poor scheme? maybe not enough talent miscommunication or is there something else that we're not seeing? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think some of it is, you know, you know, corners lives are made a lot easier when they're the other team, you know, the Niners can get home with four guys and they're not this year. Obviously we talked about the lack of sacks and lack of mm-hmm. pressure, but that's making things a little more difficult. Um, you know, it, it's hard to say. I mean, just like the Witherspoon is just his, his numbers are down. You know, they tried Ward. He hasn't really done that well. You know, Greg Maven kind of jumped in, yes, uh, on Sunday, and he only played 29 snaps, but actually had the top grade on the team. He um, got targeted five times. I think he gave up two catches for 18 yards. He forced a fumble. So mm-hmm. I think he might get some more play this week when they kind of do that corner rotation. Um, you know, Reuben Foster missed the first two games. You know, came back, kind of struggled against the Chiefs. Well, everybody kind of did, but he struggled. He had six missed tackles against the Chiefs, and he only had 10 all that season as a whole. So, um, you know, next week, Colbert. Colbert struggled the first few games and then he got hurt. Um, you know, we Jukowski Tart's been out for a couple of games. So I think it's, you know, some guys not playing up to the level they did last year and other guys have gotten hurt. And, um, but it's a lack of a pass rush, just, you know, not making plays in the secondary. I mean, there were a couple of plays where Weatherspoon's had good coverages, but not, you know, there's been a good throw and he hasn't made the play or he hasn't mm-hmm. been able to break it up. Um, I mean, I think it's any number of things you could probably think of, but, um, Definitely the defense as a whole has regressed so far last year, at least for the first four weeks. And one of the other things you mentioned earlier was that the front office didn't do very much with pass rush in the offseason. They did bring in a, a Tauchu who was subsequently cut, but they didn't really draft anybody. And they were kind of relying on, they resigned Cassius Marsh, but they're kind of relying on the incumbents to do something. Do you think, do you think that the front office kind of overestimated the, the talent level on this roster when it comes to the pass rush? Um, I, you know, maybe I think, I think there's a lot of factors there. I mean, one, I mean, obviously, you know, decent pass rushers don't grow on trees in the free agent market. Cause if you have one, you try to keep one. And it's the, the very few that become available that, you know, maybe be able to help you end up, you know, costing a gazillion dollars. I mean, look at Detroit, you know, franchising Ziggy Ansa, who's, you know, kind of been up and down and inconsistent how much they're having to pay him. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it's understandable. They didn't get a big name in free agency. I kind of thought they would, go after somebody in the draft. I mean, you know, Harold Landry was a guy I really liked a lot. And then, you know, when he started to fall into the second round, I was really hoping they'd move up and get him. Um, you know, they didn't get him. I mean, I, I obviously get to a point after the first few rounds where 
know, if you draft a guy in the fourth, fifth, sixth round, a good chance he's not going to be any better than someone you have on the roster anyway. But I kind of thought they would make a little more aggressive attempt to, to shore that up. I mean, I know this is a multi-year kind of rebuild, so it wasn't like this is a winner, you know, a Super Bowl or bust year for the Niners. So, mm-hmm. but I definitely think this offseason, whether it's free agency, the draft, or both, that's something they have to be really aggressive to shore up because it's obviously been a weakness from the last couple of seasons. And one of those guys that was drafted over the last couple of years was former number three overall pick Solomon Thomas, who's largely been a disappointment this year. He has zero sacks, only four tackles in four games, and he's playing roughly half the snaps each game. I believe he played uh, 60% of the snaps this, this past game, but the previous two games he was playing under half the snaps. Now, I've been saying the best place for him is inside beside Buckner because Buckner really just makes everybody that, that much better around him. And it, the 49ers seem to be avoiding that, and they seem to be playing him on the outside continuously. He even dropped back into coverage this past week. So yeah. I, I just I just don't know if there's a situation where the 49ers are stubborn and they just don't know what's best for him, or they're just trying to fit a square peg in a round hole. Like, what, what are they trying to do here? Yeah, I mean, I think it's tough. I think they're still trying to figure out what the best fit for him is. And I think it's tough because, you know, he he's been, you know, decent against the run both you know his rookie season even a little bit this year um it's the pass rush which has really been a weakness i mean you go back to stanford he was, was very good rushing the passer there but that was from the inside um didn't do it very much last year but when he did our metrics were showed that he was a lot more efficient rushing from inside um you know i so i think from a passer standpoint like you look at third down and passing down definitely needs to be inside um he's more effective there i think he said deforest buckner can help him out there um, you know, on, on the base downs, you know, first down and stuff like that, I think it's a little different. I think they're worried about him, you know, maybe getting overmatched in the run game just because of the size of these playing inside. And so they're trying to keep him on the edge, you mm-hmm. know, on early downs. So, I mean, I kind of think, you know, it's not a perfect fit, but I mean, I think the best situation for him is, you know, playing on the outside on, on early downs, you know, in the base system. And then, you know, on these third down passing downs where he, that's where he rushes inside. I think the issue is, they got a lot of other guys they like to bring inside on third down. Obviously, Buckner is a guy you want to have on the field, but I mean, mm-hmm. Eric Armstead's pretty efficient pass rusher inside. Even Sheldon Day, pretty you know as well. So you got four guys there for two spots. So I think that's why he's not getting as many spot uh, snaps as people might think, just because when they get into these passing situations, he's having a hard time getting on the field because they want to bring him inside. But there's other guys I think you know Buckner, Armstead, Day, two are just as efficient, if not more so. So it's kind of a catch-22 there. But it's, you know, it's, and the expectations obviously are pretty high with him because he was a third overall pick. You're expecting him to dominate. You know, DeForest Buckner, I think, was a seventh pick, if I remember correctly, and he's, you know, mm-hmm. you know blossomed quite well. So, yeah, it, it's a tough call. Because I just, there isn't an easy fit for him, and I think they're still trying to struggle with where he fits best. Then moving to the offensive side of the ball, George Kittle is having a stellar season so far. He leads the team in receptions with 18 and yards with 316. And is this the kind of role the 49ers envisioned for him when they drafted him? Or is this kind of just a case of them not having enough on offense and Kittle being the only reliable option who gets open? No, I think this was, I think someone, I'm obviously this is not a guy who was putting up you know, huge numbers. I always you know, did more of kind of a run blocking role there. But mm-hmm. I think just you look at his, his spark scores and he, he would coming into the draft in 2017. He was, I mean, he tested out one more athletic tight ends. I think him and um, and Joku, I think, are the two most athletic tight ends based off spark score. So I think they saw something there. And you kind of saw it in, in, in fifth last year. I mean, he had a hard time staying healthy. So 
Mm-hmm. I think he even played a few games hurt, so you didn't quite see him, you know, as, as efficient maybe as they thought. But I mean, I think most people thought this was possibly a breakout year for him, especially with with Garoppolo in tow. Um, so I mean, it's not. A, I mean, he's definitely put up some big numbers. I don't think it's a huge surprise. Um, you know, he's our top graded tight end after four weeks. He kind of made our PFF first quarter All Pro team. Mm-hmm. Um, you look at uh, yards per pass route run as far as efficiency goes. He's averaging 2.87 yards per route run, which is second behind OJ Howard. I think he's like a 2.88. So he's right up the top there. Um, he's doing really well with his run blocking grade. So, I mean, um, definitely you know, a breakout year for him. I think a little bit of that is just maybe not having a huge surrounding cast with, around him, but uh, especially with some of these injuries with like Goodwin and Pettis going down. But uh, I, I, you know, Shanahan likes to throw to his tight ends in his scheme. And I think they identified him as, as that guy. Yeah, Kittle's one of those guys that when he runs, he doesn't necessarily look smooth, but he actually had a faster 40 time at the Combine than Delaney Walker did. And around here, as you know, Delaney Walker is one of those guys that people love because of the mismatches that he created and and the mismatches he was able to create for Vernon Davis. And I, I feel like Kittle can do that same sort of thing because when he took that pass, it was basically like there was defenders running after him, but they weren't gaining ground. Like they were all DBs and they weren't gaining ground. So it was pretty impressive. He's not like a an elegant runner, but he is, he is very athletic, as you said. Sneaky fast, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's, he's one of those guys that I, I am really looking forward to seeing when Jimmy gets back, how they build that rapport and how he can integrate himself into a Kyle Shannon offense with other weapons around him. I think it's, it's going to be one of those situations where he may be one of the reliable targets. Like if you look at New England, their offense runs through a tight end. They don't really have dominant receivers. Right. So, yeah, I mean, another guy who stepped up huge has been, has been Matt Burita. Averaging 7.6 yards per carry, and he's currently in the top five in rushing in the NFL. And he doesn't have as many touches as as the other guys do that are around him on that list. Do you really feel like he's kind of settling into that RB1 role at this point and kind of maybe making them think twice about Jerk McKinnon? Um, I I mean, I don't think he's gonna be, you know, like the bell cow where he's gonna get like 20, 25 carries a game one. I think that's kind of not really a Kyle Shanahan thing. I mean, you look at Atlanta where they had you know, Devontae Freeman and Coleman there kind of splitting carries a little bit. So I, I think they kind of originally envisioned that with, with McKinnon and Brita kind of splitting carries. Um, you know, and then McKinnon going down, they had to bring in, you know, Alfred Morris. I mean, I don't think you're going to see him, you know, be just the guy. Also, I think just size-wise, I know he's had shoulder issues too. I think they're trying to be careful with him. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, obviously McKinnon is much more effective in, in the passing game. Though Brita, you know, last year in rookie year was, you know, Breida really struggled in the passing game. He was struggled in pass protection. He uh, had the worst drop rate in the league among running backs last year. Carlos Hyde actually led all running backs in a number of drops just because he had a lot of targets. But Breida was actually had the worst drop rate. And I think that's one thing he's really improved this year. I, I think he's only got 10 catches, but I mean, a few of them have been tough catches. No drops. He's been very, you know, he's definitely someone with a threat in the open field once he gets the ball in his hands. Um and they're really not keeping him in the pass block much, if at all. So I think that hasn't really been an issue either. So I think that's one thing that's been a pleasant surprise. Obviously, Shannon likes to use his running backs in the passing game. And you're really not going to get that too much with Alfred Morris. And that was where I think losing McKinnon just really killed him the most because I think that's where he was going to be a weapon. So Rita's kind of picked up the slack there. So I think that's been huge. And, you know, like you mentioned, 70.6 yards per carries leading the league. Um, we have a, a metric called breakaway percentage, which is the number percentage of yards you get on runs of 15%, 15, 15 yards or more. 
Mm-hmm. And he leads the league with that. So 58% of his yardage has come on uh, runs of 15 or more. So that's uh, something else where he's leading the league. So, um, you know, I think the key with him right now is I, obviously the shoulder's kind of been an issue. You heard it in preseason. The one time he did pass block against, or against Los Angeles, he took a pretty big hit and, you know, came off the field for a few plays. I think it was the same shoulder. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you yeah, know, like I said, I think, I think what we see him is just, it's just encouraging when they do get McKinnon back next year that they're going to have a hell of a one, two punch. I knew you'd throw me, you'd throw me a stat out like that about the, uh, the uh, 15 yards or more that, that those are the stats I love. And for those of you who, who don't follow Jeff on Twitter, please follow him because we're getting all sorts of stats like this from pro football focus that are invaluable. And they tell a deeper story than the one, the actual game stats will tell you. And, how do you evaluate a guy like Matt Breida that, that doesn't necessarily have the amount of carries that some of the other guys do, but does more with his carries? Yeah. So, I mean, it's, you know, obviously without getting too far into detail about it, I mean, we grade every player on every play. And so, and it's, you know, and there's, you know, different facets. I mean, if you're running back, it's obviously, you know, carrying the ball um, as pass receiving um, pass blocking. I mean, you happen to, if you have to be out there for run blocking, if, you know, if they good ones on a jet sweep or, you know, they happen to give it to the fullback or something like that. So, I mean, you get the run block rate and stuff like that. So those, you know, grades get put in, you know, for every play, it gets accumulated into a game. And then we have like, you know, a very complicated normalization process. Which I won't even begin to try to describe it. That ends up sitting out uh, a zero to a hundred grade for each one of those facets and then an overall grade. So um, it does take into account, you know, number of snaps and, and, mm-hmm. and production and so on and so forth. And, you know, like I said, 50 factors I can't even get to. I would spend the next hour talking about, but um, <laughs> there's, there's, there's a lot of different things involved where, I mean, uh, that the factor into, you know, whether it's overall grade or his grade in different facets of play. And we're talking to Jeff Dini from pro football focus and Jeff, let's talk about CJ Beathard real quick. I wanted to get your thoughts on how CJ has progressed from last year to this year. And some of the things that you're seeing from him that he's kind of improved on. Um, yeah, I mean, it's tough. It's one game though. I mean, he did look, he looked pretty good, um, on Sunday, you know, we gave him a grade of 75.0, um, as far as passing goes, which was pretty much a middle of the pack last week, as far as quarterbacks go, mm-hmm. um, you know, didn't get a lot of help as far as pass protection. He was under pressure on, on a little over 40% of his dropbacks, which is, I think the league average is around 32, 33 right now. So he was under pressure quite a bit and actually his passing rating his pass rating when he was under pressure was a lot higher. I think it was 90.5 as opposed to it was 78.8 when he was throwing from a clean pocket, which is, which is very rare. Usually when, uh, when a quarterback's under pressure, his pass rating drops about 30, 35 points, mm-hmm. um, which, which our theory used to be, our comparison was like comparing, you know, Tom Brady to Blaine Gabbert, you know, draw, you know, someone's quarterback rating drops 35 points. So, um, having a higher pass rating under pressure was pretty impressive. I think part of that was the 82 yard touchdown to Kittle, but still, mm-hmm. um, you know, other things still like to see is, you know, the internal clock with him and taking hits. I think you saw that last year, you saw it this week where he just was taking a beating. You like to see that, mm-hmm. especially now that he's, you know, he's the guy Garoppolo's gone for the year and they don't really have anybody else. So I'd like to try to see him avoid some of those hits. Um, but, you know, definitely, you know, through, one thing he did, he pushed the ball downfield a little more last this week than he did in you know last year. One thing we saw last year, he was throwing a lot of passes to running backs. The depth mm-hmm. of target was not very high. Um, saw a little more confidence pushing the ball downfield, at least for one week anyway. Um, but, I mean, I definitely, I mean, it wasn't the offense's fault with the exception of the Selleck drop, which I think was mm-hmm. probably the turning point in the games. I think that was like a 10-point swing there. 
Mm-hmm. The Niners were kind of going in. They had first and goal, looking for a touchdown, and then it went the other way. I think they held San Diego to a field goal yeah. on that drive, if I remember correctly. But still, that was late in the game was a huge swing. But, I mean, definitely, I mean, aside from that, I mean, the offense played well enough for them to win. So, um, you know, hopefully, you know, this year, I, mean, I think I don't remember what Brothers record last year was a 1-7, 1-8. But uh, I, I see them hopefully win a couple more games this year with Brothers than they did last year. He has to learn how to slide. Like he can't. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I know it was the same thing with Garoppolo, you know, with him getting hurt. But that last play, mm-hmm. I mean, I know he was trying to make a play, but I mean, he just took a humongous shot. I mean, lucky he didn't mm-hmm. fumble. Um, <laughs> the one one difference from this year is last year he's getting roughing the passer calls because of the new rules yeah. <laughs> that he wasn't getting last year on some of these things. Mm-hmm. So I think they gained, they gained thirty yards they wouldn't have gotten last year on a couple of these penalties. But uh, <laughs> yeah, he definitely needs to work on not taking so many hits. And speaking of Jimmy, now that's obviously been the biggest story of the 49ers season thus far, but there's still 12 games left on the schedule as of the re- recording of the show. And in your opinion, what can 49ers fans look, look forward to for the, for the rest of the season and going into next season when Jimmy gets back? Yeah. I mean, I think one, you know, obviously the schedule is going to get a little easier. I mean, this was probably the toughest part of the schedule. I mean, I thought even back at the beginning of the year when Jimmy was, was still the starter that if they could have gone, two and two of the first four that they were doing well. And I mean, they were, you know, two points away from doing that, even with, with Beathard starting last week. And so, I mean, if they could have gotten to two and two after the charger game, I thought that would have really been impressive. You know, mm-hmm. Things get a little easier. Obviously they have Arizona this week and they'll get him them a second time later on. And they're struggling quite a bit. Um, if, you know, some other teams that are coming in like the Raiders and other team is struggling. So, I mean, I think, you know, I know people are talking about tanking and getting one of the first couple of picks in the draft. I mean, I still see, see this team winning, you know, probably four or five more games, assuming they can stay relatively healthy and probably mm-hmm. end up, you know, five, 11, six and 10 in that route. You know, hopefully the defense improves. Obviously that's where they've been really struggling. You know, if they can get some of these guys, you have good, good one can get healthy. You know, they're going to lose Pettis probably for a few weeks and he can get healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, some of these younger guys get some experience, you know, the Kendrick Bournes of the world. Um, you know, maybe Richie James can get in the lineup, get some, get their feet wet, get some experience this year so they can be contributors next year with, you know, Garoppolo coming back. And hopefully, like I said, you shore up the pass rush in the offseason, make some improvements on the defensive side of the ball that next year this team could hopefully, you know, compete for playoff spot. Now, Jeff, the last question I have for you is how'd you get started at PFF? Like, how does one become a PFF? person? What, what do you guys call your uh, PFFers or what's the official like term for you guys? <laughs> I don't, I don't think there is one. I just, yeah, everyone, you know, like I come on these things, they go, what's your title? I was just like, <laughs> I, we, we, we do so many different, I mean, everybody there does like three, four, five, six, seven different roles, whether it's, you know, I mean, my case, you know, obviously part of my job, I mean, is media correspondent is mostly is I work with all of the Niner beat writers and some of the radio and TV guys and just mm-hmm. providing stats and content to them they can use for their articles or the radio shows or whatever. Um, I do a uh, game charting. I mean, for example, one thing that I do on Sunday nights is once we get the uh, the film in for the L22 film in um, for the Niners or my, sometimes it's other teams as well, we go in and we'll chart. Um, I chart every single, on every single pass play of a game, basically chart what all five eligible receivers do on a play, whether it's you know what type of pass route they ran, what depth it was, like if it was a 12-yard post or a mm-hmm. short crossing route. Did they stay in the block? Um, if it was a running back, did he take a fake before he went out for his pass routes? I mean, trying those type of things. Um, and then another thing I do is more on the college side is uh, we do we create a lot of like advanced scouting reports for for teams. Sometimes 
they're for our uh, college clients, and sometimes if it's we're trying to pitch new teams, mm-hmm. um, we'll we'll create scouting reports for their next opponent to give to them um, that they can use using our data. Um, so those are a few of the main. There's a couple other things I do too, but I mean, and so everybody who works with PFF kind of does has kind of a jack of all trades role. But I started. This is my seventh season with PFF. When I started, um, I just happened to be a fan of the site. I mean, I was going back just going back too far, but I was always a math was a little kid and just loved sports and loved stats and, you know, had the rotisserie baseball league I was running when I was 12 years old. Mm-hmm. So kind of became a fan of PFF because of that. And they were hiring um, part-time analysts back then. This is 2012 off season. Um, took, uh, so they had about 200 applicants, so I think about five or six jobs at the time. Went through two 10 hour tests of charting games and mm-hmm. ended up being one of the five people they hired at the time. And, this was, I mean, we had a couple NFL clients at the time. I think we had about 30 or 40 part-time employees that year and maybe about eight or nine full-time guys. And now we've grown where I, I mean, I think we have about four or 500 part-time wow. guys now and probably about 40 or 50 full-time. We've, yeah, you know, I, I think it's pretty you know, well-known. Chris Collinsworth and his group kind of bought a majority of our company and put in a lot mm-hmm. of capital. And when we, he did that, we were able to, you know, hire a bunch more people. We also, we started charting college games, which you know, in the NFL, you have 16 games a week, that's it. But in college, you have like another, you know, 55 or 60 on Saturday. So that required an exponential increase in, in man hours and resources. Um, but that's been a big step for us because not only is it able to uh, have us sign up collegiate teams as well, but the NFL teams love that data and our metrics for, for, the, for draft purposes as well. So, and we, you know, we're at the point now where all 32 NFL teams are clients of ours. So um, as far as from a, a team standpoint, we've kind of had to branch out to college just from growth purposes because it's, you know, at this point, we can't really grow too much more from an NFL standpoint. <laughs> yeah, man, that's that's all, that's really cool. Like I, for me personally, like I I live by PFF's statistics and advanced metrics and things like that because it tells a story that, like I said earlier, the game stats don't tell because you guys watch every play. And game stats don't keep track of an individual player's blocking assignment or what route they ran or the depth of the route that they ran, even even if they didn't get the ball. So I think what you're doing is great for our listeners out there. You guys need to give Jeff a follow. You guys need to pick up PFF stuff. You guys need to read it, study it. It'll make you a better fan. It'll make make you a better football fan. It'll make you a better 49er fan. And Jeff, man, we should definitely do this again. This was fun. No, no problem. Happy to come on anytime. All right. Thanks, man. Take care. Take care. And thanks again to Jeff for joining us. I always love reading their advanced statistics because as I said several times during the interview, they don't when you get look at when you look at actual game statistics, they don't tell you the entire story of the game because you only see the players that were directly involved in, in the plays and you don't see all the the peripheral stuff that's going around them that makes that play happen. And pro football focus that their statistics are used by NFL teams, they're used by colleges scouting departments use them. This is something that's actually becoming like kind of a standard sort of thing now. Whereas like 10 years ago, nobody really used these advanced metrics and statistics to track things, but it's really cool. Uh, you guys should give them a follow on Twitter and, and definitely start diving into to a lot of these things because it makes you a better fan and more informed fan. So thank you again to Jeff. Now there's a lot to unpack with the 49ers right now. And we're about a quarter of the way through the season. In fact, we are a quarter of the way through the season and the team sitting at one and three and we are kind of at a crossroads where do we feel like it's better to try to win as many games as possible, or do we feel like it's better to try to get the best draft pick possible? And for me, I'm always about winning games. Like the confidence that a player gets through winning, nothing can replace that. 
And that's, that's what you saw last year. Again, going back to that last five game stretch is that they had so much confidence in themselves. They felt like they could beat everybody. And I think that may have worked against them maybe a little bit this off season and made them feel like they could be a little bit more hesitant to bring in more players because they had guys that they felt like could get the job done. Now, I, I love I love the job that John Lynch has done with the roster, and I love the fact that he has Adam Peters backing him up and Martin Mayhew, who is the former GM himself. I think that they've done a really good job flipping the roster. Now, have they brought in enough difference makers? I, this is only year, year two of the rebuild, and you can't really judge a rebuild when you're only a quarter of the way through. This was a six-year contract for John Lynch and Kyle Shannon, for that matter. They're not even two years into it, so... Do I think that they can do more? Absolutely. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they've done a bad job because you're looking at a roster that has been flipped almost completely in two years. There's only a handful of guys that were here when Trump Balky was here. And even those guys are in danger of losing their job because some of them can't stay on the field. Some of them just aren't effective. And there's a new draft class, a new free agent class coming in next year. So you're seeing a difference in talent every week and you're seeing a gap in talent. But I think that once we get further along in this rebuild, you'll see that gap start to shorten and you'll see the 49ers actually being able to win some of these close games. Right now, honestly, I just think it's a case of these teams are just more talented than the 49ers are on paper. And granted, games aren't won on paper, won and lost on paper, but you have to have the proper talent to be able to compete in this league. And, and they're, they're, they're getting there yet. They're still building this team and it's still a work, very much a work in progress. And one of those areas is I want to start right at the quarterback position with, with CJ Beathard and look, CJ is a really tough guy and he took a lot of hits this weekend, but he's not going to be able to last the entire season. If he keeps taking hits like that, the guy's exceedingly tough. And I know it rubs off on the rest of the team. And we all know that this is Jimmy Garoppolo's job when he gets back and CJ is kind of just keeping the seat warm, unless something extra extraordinary happens this year. And CJ is just unbelievable for an extended stretch. I think that really, I, I feel bad for the kid because he's almost like a tackling dummy. And when you look at the job that he has in front of him and the, the distinct lack of weapons with, especially in the, in the receiving core, it's really hard because he's kind of having to take it upon his shoulders, a second year quarterback who's still learning the playbook and getting comfortable being an NFL quarterback with limited experience. You're putting a lot on his shoulders to be able to have him keep the team competitive. Now, hopefully the defense will step it up. But as far as CJ goes, the, the one throw that actually sticks out to me the most was not the touchdown to Kittle this week. It was the touchdown to Kittle last week, which should have been a touchdown against Kansas City. He came in cold off the bench, and he threw a dime in the corner of the end zone on what should have been a touchdown. And that's something that he not, would not have been able to do last year. That's something that really you don't expect a rookie quarterback to do. So the fact that he makes that throw shows me that he's grown. Now, they definitely made the offense more simple for him. There were a lot of quick reads. There were a lot of getting rid of the ball quickly. And frankly, it looked a lot like the offense we saw last year. And I think he felt really comfortable in that. And the 49ers jumped out to lead in the beginning. And it, it just really comes down to execution in the end of the game as well. Like you have to be able to put a team away. And I, I don't think they're ready to take that next leap to, to put good teams away, but it's encouraging to see the offense kind of come together. Uh, Kittle was really, really good. As I mentioned in the, in the interview with, um, with, with Jeff, Kittle is leading the team in catches and yards. And when you're getting that kind of production from your tight end, it's it alleviates the pressure off of everybody else because he becomes like a safety outlet. And I really think that they're just scratching the surface on how good Kittle can be. He was one of the guys before the season that we talked about that we really had high hopes for because he was a mismatch for everybody. He's too big for corners. He's six foot four. 
and he's 250 plus pounds and he's too fast for linebackers. He runs a four, four, five, 40, which is faster than Delaney Walker. So I really think that you'll see George Kittle. He's on pace for over a thousand yards. I'm, he may not get there because you'll see more double teams and, and more jams at the line and things like that. But I really think that the 49ers have something there going forward into next year and the years beyond in, in George Kittle, if he can stay healthy. Another guy that I really like is Matt Breida. Matt Breida has been an absolute godsend this year. He's been amazing. And he's been having kind of a limited role. Like he, he's still splitting carries with Alfred Morris. I believe Alfred Morris has two more carries, two or three more carries than Breida does. But Morris is averaging 3.8 yards a carry right now. And Breida is averaging 7.6. So there's a, a large difference there. Nobody has more 20-yard runs than Matt Breida. And he shows explosiveness. He shows the ability to catch the ball. He's only had 10 receptions this year so far. But it's, he's already better, further along than he was last year. And these are guys that when you have a building team, these are guys that you can build around. And I had the question about whether Brita makes Jarek McKinnon expend, expendable or not. We really will see about that because Jarek McKinnon was a guy that was brought in on a big contract and they're not necessarily going to cut a guy on a big contract because he was hurt and another guy stepped up and, and produced. I think they'll still give McKinnon a shot. And in a Kyle Shanahan offense, you're not necessarily going to see one bell cow back. You'll see two guys sharing the load, much like, Atlanta did with Tevin Coleman, Vontae Freeman, you'll see them sharing the load and based off of the sub package that they're in, you'll see them sub in and out. So I think that what's most important is with Brita is that he stays healthy. He gets out of this year without any catastrophic injuries like Jimmy did. And, and really it comes down to him being able to learn and grow in this offense and get used to the NFL game and speed. He has all of the physical tools. Like he's, he's a, a willing blocker, even though he sometimes gets hurt while he's blocking he has ex- exceptional speed. He's got exceptional carrying ability. He doesn't really fumble the ball. And he's got really good vision too. So I think that he has, the, they're the makings of a really good running back and a really good piece for uh, Shanahan's offense. And that's something that they're going to have to feature more going forward. In fact, like I think that they should give more carries to Matt Breida. In this last game against San Diego, I believe CJ, CJ had 37 pass attempts. Like You're not going to win very many games when CJ throws the ball that much. And CJ's only win last year he threw the ball, I think it was 26 times. So he threw it less than 30 times. And all of the other games that he, that he lost, he threw the ball 35 more times. So the 49ers really don't have very much balance right now. And I think that Kyle Shanahan is still working the kinks out with his offense and trying to figure out who he can fit where. And, and Brito was one of those guys where they didn't really know what they could get out of him, yet he's really performed with the limited time that he's had. So I'm looking forward to seeing Matt more. I'm looking forward to seeing him get the ball more. I want to see what he does if he gets 20 carries in a game because that may very well happen where injury is dictated or he's just the hot hand and just running over everybody. I want to see him be able to, to, to shoulder that load and be able to stay healthy. So excited about Matt Breida, excited about George Kittle, cautiously optimistic about CJ Beathard because I think that he can be a worthy backup before the season started. You, you guys may remember me saying that you want a backup to be able to win you a couple games if your starter goes out. Now, we didn't foresee this scenario playing out where the starter's out for the entire season, but we wanted CJ to be able to come in and if Jimmy went down for a couple games, just hold the fort and not not burn down the house, basically, and just navigate them to a couple wins. And I think that CJ is turning into a guy that they're really relying on. So excited, excited to see that too. Offensive line, there were a number of injuries on the offensive line. Both tackles, Staley and McGlinchey went down. Richburg went down the center, and they're all questionable for the next game against Arizona here in San Francisco. 
and really it comes down to depth. And this is exactly what the 49ers need. If they're going to compete, they need to be able to have depth because every single hundred percent of teams deal with injuries, especially in the trenches, because those guys are blocking, they get rolled up on. I believe all three of those are knee injuries too. So these, these are things that really test your metal as a roster assembler and John Lynch and as a head coach in Kyle Shanahan, because you don't have your number ones out there. How creative can you get to still put together a winning game plan? And I think that this is good training for the future. If anything, we know that the 49ers are going to struggle to, to stop people and they're going to struggle to, to win a lot of games this year if they struggle to stop people. So you treat this year as another building year. Whereas before with Jimmy, it was, it was almost like a contention year for the division, but really Honestly, I don't think they're catching the Rams this year. The Rams are head and shoulders above anybody and everybody in the NFC, and there there are just too many good teams between the 49ers and the top. So use this year as as a as a building year. I'm not saying throw in the towel, but use this year to build that depth for the subsequent years and weed out the players that you want to keep and and the players that you want to replace. And offensive line is no exception. You know, Macy, Gary, Gilliam at left tackle playing Joe Staley's spot, which is a scary thought for CJ Beathard because that's the blind side. Mike McGlinchey had mentioned, uh, I believe today, that he's going to be able to go in the game. So I expect he's going to be hobbled, but I expect Mike McGlinchey to be able to at least give it a go for some period of time in the game. Richburg is still questionable. Now, obviously, we we don't really know. We won't really know until game time whether he's going to play or not. But uh, it just comes down to finding replacement. Eric Magnuson, who, who, was, who was on our show earlier this year, He's one of those guys that can play multiple multiple positions on the line, and that's why they got him because he can fill in on basically any spot, and he would probably get the start at center if Richburg can't go. So Richburg is one of the better pass blocking centers in the league, and there's definitely going to be a drop off there. That's not that's not to say that Magnuson can't get the job done and not slide against him. It just is what it is. And and as a head coach, you have to account for those things in in your preparation and game plan and things like that. So it'll be interesting to see how Kyle really puts together. Uh, a game plan centered around three offensive line potentially missing the receiving core. I, I just don't, I just don't know about these guys. Like I, Pierre Garcon's looked much better, obviously with CJ Beathard and, and they, he played well last year. He had 50 catches. He had, he had, uh, he was on pace for a thousand yards when CJ was in there. And, and obviously Brian Hoyer played a couple games too, but he had a pretty good first half of the season last year before he went out with the neck injury. And I really feel like Beathard and Garcon have much better chemistry than Garoppolo and Garcon did. So you'll see more throws to Garcon and getting more involved in the offense. He has 12 catches now. And it's only averaging three catches a game through four weeks. So it's not like huge numbers, but at least Al's stat last week where he had no 49ers receivers were over 100 yards for the season. At least Garcon surpassed that now. They have they have one wide receiver who is. And Al had put out put out some stats on Twitter, and it's interesting to see. And if, if you guys haven't seen it already, go back to his, his uh, Twitter page and look at these stats from the wide receivers comparing them from last year to this year. I believe every, all of them were pretty much almost on par, give or take one or two catches. But I, what's, what's changed this year? What's really the difference between last year's team and this year's team? Why aren't they winning games at the same clip they were? Obviously, Jimmy Garoppolo is the, the biggest difference. But even then, like they're still in these games, and they even took the lead for a little bit against San Diego. Uh, it was a really, really gutsy effort by the offense to to get back in the game when it really seemed like San Diego was going to run away with it. But what's changed, really? The biggest thing that's changed in my mind is the defense and the fact that they, they're undisciplined, they take penalties, they don't tackle well, they don't create turnovers, they don't get to the quarterback. 
So really all of the key things that a defense needs to do to be able to win you games, they're not doing. And I, I want to start up front and I want to talk about the defensive line because this group has no reason to be performing as poorly as it is because there are three first round, three high first round picks there that are off on that, on that defensive line right now. And Buckner has, he started out really well. DeForest Buckner played really, really well in the first two games. And he's, he's noticeably cooled off. So I don't know if there's an injury there that we're not seeing, or it's just teams kind of keying on him and sending the double team towards him and just winning their one-on-one matchups everywhere else. I'm guessing the latter. And I think that you'll see more of that this season because DeForest Buckner is frankly the only 49ers defensive lineman that can really create a push on every single play. Now, what they do on the outside with the pass rush, really, I, I, there's nobody on the roster right now that's contributing significantly to the pass rush. As, as uh, Jeff mentioned, Cassius Marsh has had over 100 pass rush snaps. He doesn't even have a sack yet, and he's not getting to the quarterback. And if you're not going to get to the quarterback, at least get there to put a hit on him or at least get there to flush the quarterback out or hurry him or do something. The 49ers are not doing any of that. And it's really alarming to me because you have a number three overall pick in Solomon Thomas who is supposed to be that Leo sort of pass rusher. I didn't see him that way. Granted, like I thought that he was always a, a defensive tackle and interior defensive tackle, but John Lynch really drafted him to be that Leo position and rush the passer. And it just hasn't worked out. Like he has four tackles in four games. That's not enough for a number three overall pick. You have to be contributing more. You have to be able to get to the ball carry. You have to be able to get to the ball. You have to be able to do something, hit the quarterback, hurry the quarterback, do something with your presence in that lineup, occupy a double team. It, it really doesn't matter. There are things that guys do that don't show up on the stat sheet that help the team all the time. Constantly it happens, especially on the defensive line. And Solomon Thomas just is not doing those things. And at some point you really have to look at this and be like, Hey, is this, is this guy really right for, for this team in this position? And I'm not saying that they should do this now. It's only four games into his second year. And he got a late start last year because of Sanford's offseason and their extended exam schedule. So this is really his first full offseason that he's had that he's been able to focus on just football and being an NFL player. I'm hoping that he's he's maybe a late bloomer. He can turn into a productive starter, but he's playing roughly half the snaps that the defense has had this entire season. He played 60% this past week, but the other three games, he's playing less than half the snaps. And that's not what you want out of your number three overall pick. And that's not a slide against Solomon as a guy. Like we've talked to him online and offline and he's a really good dude. He's a really good guy. Comes from a really good family. I want him to succeed. I want him to do well. That's the type of guy that if you knew him and you talked to him off the, off of the interviews and off offline and off the record or stuff, that's the guy that you want to root for. That's the guy that you want to succeed. So it's not anything personal against Solomon. Like I really like the kid, but I just, where you're drafted, you have to, you have to be able to produce at that, at a high level. And the 49ers just aren't getting that. On the other side, Eric Armstead's been, he's been a little bit better this year, but still he, he, he actually played a much better first half where he, he was able to get to the quarterback a couple of times and, and him and Sheldon day who, who has been great, a great addition that came on the cheap from the Jaguars and Sheldon day. But Armstead has been, he's been kind of struggling a little bit to find a role there. They've been platooning him with some people. Ronald Blair has been taking some snaps and Salman Thomas has obviously been taking some snaps over there. And really they, they, they seem like they have a lot of guys that are similar and not very many explosive guys besides Buckner. So I think that Armstead with him as well, it's kind of a crossroads. Like if he doesn't produce, they got to think of upgrading that position. And I think that 
he's one he's he's obviously one of those those last bulky picks and he was the first of the three defensive linemen picked from the 49ers from uh from from Oregon and uh the Pac-12 but it really just comes down to production and I, I just don't think he's producing enough to warrant where he was drafted. Obviously, like I wanted Mar- Marcus Peters with that pick. In hindsight, it's twenty twenty, and you all can say that. But I mean, at the at the time, I, w- I wanted Marcus Peters as well. So it really comes down to to drafting well, and Balky wasn't good at that, and the Forty Nineers are still paying for that. So hoping that the defensive line can figure something out and get some sort of pressure without having to constantly send a blitz. The defense that Robert Sala runs, and I'll get to Robert Sala in a second the defense that he runs is reliant on them not sending extra pressure because then everybody else is able to play the zones that they're assigned to and the corners can play man. And you have that one safety over the top that, that will double whatever side Richard Sherman is not on basically. So they're not able to really run their scheme because they, they don't get any pressure with the front four. Now that could change in the future because, Hey, one of these guys could break out and all of a sudden the light bulb could turn on or, they could come up with some like Julian Taylor is still sitting on the practice squad and he does have something to, to a lot to learn when it comes to the NFL game, but they could promote him and he could provide a spark. You never know. There's a, there's a lot of season left. There's three quarters of the season left. We don't know where that pass rush is going to come from. They're not going to end the season with eight sacks. Okay. They, they're going to end the season with, with 20 plus sacks or 30 sacks. Like it's, it's normal for an NFL team to end up with that many sacks. So I, they have to come from somewhere and I'm interested to see where that comes from. Now, if you look at the DB group, this is a group that that they can't a they can't stay healthy, and b when they are healthy, they're not very good. Exum had the pick six, which was a, a really nice way to start the game, and and it's something. It was the 49ers' first interception this year, and obviously their first defensive touchdown as well. They're the only team before that in the league without a, an interception, so at least they're off off the schneid for that. But when it comes to their actual DB play, they they they're not, they're just not very good. They don't give up. They give up a lot of yards. They don't tackle very well. They don't create turnovers. They can't stay healthy. And I think Witherspoon, frankly, has, has a pretty bad ankle injury. I I don't think he's playing healthy. I think that he's playing just because he's a body and they need bodies out there, but I don't think he's a hundred percent. And I don't think he's been a hundred percent for a few weeks now. So because the, the difference, the difference between last year and this year is, is very stark between what Akela Weatherspoon was doing. So I really think that he's not hundred percent and he's just trying to gut it out, but they may have to eventually sit him down just for a few weeks, just to get that ankle, right? I think it's an ankle that he has get that ankle, right. And get him be being hundred percent and on the field so he can play his best at the other corner position. Richard Sherman's out for another week, at least another week. He was practicing this week and he was moving pretty well, but I think they're just going to err on the side of caution. Really. There's no rush to bring him back. I think that they realize that, that, a healthy Richard Sherman is more important than winning one or two games in the, in the beginning of the season. So I also think that they're confident they can probably beat Arizona with, with Rosen as, as the quarterback and starting this week, especially here in San Francisco. So they'll probably sit Sherman for another week or two and you'll see Jimmy Ward. If he can stay healthy, I really think this is Jimmy Ward's last year with the team. I don't think that he's going to be with he's, he's carrying a cap hit of $9 million and he's basically like an insurance policy. So he's another one of those first round drop, bulky draft busts that, that didn't pan out. And I think that they'll, they'll have to move on from him. Now the safeties are, again, they, they, they can't really stay healthy. Colbert gave it a go. They, they let Exum play and he was, he was not, he, he had the, the pick six and he, pick six and he was not bad, but again, like, 
Colbert last year and, and what he was doing the last few games, like he was just punishing people. He showed elite range and he was looking like a, a guy who could really come in and do some damage. But again, I don't know what it is this year with this defense. I, I really don't. They're not playing up to the same the same level that they were last year. And, and, and it's hurting the rest of the team because they're giving up a ton of points. And it, the offense is really just playing from behind for, for most of these games. Again, they, they, they had the first half lead this game, but really when your defense can't stop anybody, it affects your offensive game plan because you have to be more aggressive and, and you can't just punt all the time and, and hope that your defense will hold them. So really the, the whole, the group as a whole and the linebackers, I didn't get to the linebackers right now you're looking at Ruben Foster who had almost half the missed tackles in one game that he did last year. So uh, against, against Kansas city. And, and I really think it's a case of them being taught to be aggressive when they should really be more prudent with the fundamentals. And it shows all over the defense. Fred Warner got beat for the touchdown against, against Austin Eckler. That's not, that's not really a fair sort of uh, coverage because you, you can't uh, Eckler is, is, exceedingly talented and and elusive and you can't expect a linebacker to be no matter how good the linebacker is in coverage to be able to cover that. So the touchdown that Rivers threw the Eckler, I, I don't really put that in Warner. That's that he was there. It was a really well thrown ball. Sometimes the quarterbacks make that throw, sometimes they don't. In my opinion, Philip Rivers is a Hall of Famer. Um and Hall of Famers make that throw. So I, I can't really put that on him. Now what really bothered me in the game on the defensive side of the ball, aside from the missed tackles. And again, all, I'm sure all of you have seen it on Twitter. The the play where Melvin Gordon was basically stopped for a gain of a couple of yards and five 49ers missed tackles. And it was just a lot of arm tackles and shoulder tackles that they didn't make. It was, it was, it was embarrassing for an NFL team to, to be able to do that. So I'm sure you've seen that. But what really got to me was when the 49ers were down uh in playing defense and and the charges were, were in the were in the red zone and la was basically about to score and i don't remember who the cornerback was it, it, it may have been ward i don't think it was with us but i think it may have been ward and he was playing on the on the basically like playing uh kind of like not to get beat deep except the fact was is that they were on the the eight yard line or inside the 10 yard line and the end zone was right there so he's giving and it was melvin gordon that he was guarding and melvin gordon he's a running back right so he's not exactly expected to be a route technician as is any running back so he he, the 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 corners playing off about five or, or six yards and it's already in the red zone and he takes he he starts backpedaling when the ball is snapped and all Philip Rivers did was was an easy pitching catch to Gordon for the touchdown on the slant. Like when I saw that, I'm like to the, the to the corner. I'm like, what are you doing? Like, what, you're backpedaling into the end zone. Are you kidding me? Like, what for what? What are you trying to guard against? Get up there, jam that player, get him off his route, mess up his timing. Everything in the red zone is timing because the the space down there is so little. And the either you throw it up for grabs or you out physical somebody or it's got to be a timing route where you fit the ball into a small window. Make it difficult on the offense. Jam those receivers. Why are you playing zone in the red zone? And things like that just drive me nuts. And Robert Sollett has been continuously doing this. He did it in the Chiefs game where he called he called an all-out blitz on third and 15. The Chiefs got a first down. He did it in this game constantly where he was calling the wrong play, sending, sending guys when he shouldn't be sending guys, playing zone when he should be playing press man. Like It just... Like I get it the, that your defense does not have the personnel right now because everybody is injured, but at some point you have to be able to play your defense to be able to see if your scheme works. 
And I don't think Robert Sala understands that. I, I honestly, I really think that if he, if he starts, if he continues coaching like this and, and throwing out schemes like this, his job is on the line next year. Really? Like, I really think that he's coaching for his job and they have to improve. They have to like, they're, they're so bad right now in coverage and in tackling. And these are, these are things that are fundamentals. Ruben Foster, another thing, an, another, another bad miscommunication, blown coverage, the touchdown to Antonio Gates. He jumped the slant route. I don't know why, why you're jumping that slant route. You have one responsibility and that's to cover Antonio Gates. That's why you're on him because you're the most athletic linebacker that can cover him. So I don't know where the miscommunication is. I don't know whether Robert Sala is just constantly teaching them to be aggressive and, and that's getting to these young guys and making them just not think and just try to knock everybody's head off every single play. It just, it just really, there too many times they're in, they're in the wrong place. Too many times they miss coverage, too many times they miss tackles too many times. They're, they're not executing the scheme properly and it's alarming the amount of misses that they've had and they're so i al and i talk about this every week and i'm tired of talking about it but we have we talk about it every week the 49ers are so poorly coached on defense and it's killing them so really they they, they have to get they have to get better on that side of the ball now talking about things that I liked from the game, things that I really, really enjoyed seeing. I, I enjoyed seeing the fact that they got a defensive touchdown that they, when they, they came out aggressive and also fundamentally sound in, at the beginning of that game. Like you could tell this team had a chip on their shoulder and like, you know what, we're going to come in here. We're going to beat this playoff contending team and we're going to make a statement today. And they came out and they came out on fire. They came out with that pick six, the second drive, they forced a punt. And the, the Niners offense started going after that and they, and they, and they looked pretty good. And this is looking like a, a game that was really good. And I, I want them to continue that throughout the rest of the game. Now, w- will they be able to do that against teams like, uh, you know, like LA and, and Seattle, when you go up to Seattle and things like that, we'll see, but it was encouraging for one half of football for this defense to really kind of shine and show us what they're, what they're made of. Now at the end of the half, I'll, I'll get to the, 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 that call in a second, because I put a tweet out and I took some heat for that tweet. And I want to, I want to double down on my stance on that, but they did do some things good in, on defense. And one of the, the other drives that they had that the, that LA had that didn't end up in a touchdown that probably should have was right after the, the interception that CJ threw that bounced off of Selleck's chest plate. And they, they returned it down in deep inside 49ers territory. And this was basically game over right there if they score a touchdown and the defense played well they they did really really well to to bend but not break and held into a field goal and kept them in the game so i i think that the defense is slowly coming around but they just they just have to be, be better so there there is there is cause for hope and there is cause for for looking looking forward to things in the next few weeks so i i really think that the offense is coming around uh, the defense is is not not far behind them now Kyle Shanahan's coaching I want to I want to preface this take by saying that I think that Kyle Shanahan is still the brightest offensive mind in the game. I think that he just doesn't really have the talent to be able to execute his scheme fully. But trust me, when he gets the talent in here next year or the year after, and and the rebuild is compete complete and they're ready to compete, you're going to see what his his offense can really do. I think that 95 percent of the calls that he makes are right on point. He can scheme anybody open. Any you give any other offensive coach the roster that that they have now. This is a one in fifteen team, and they're they're getting blown out every game. But he's able to to manage the game in most situations really well. He's able to scheme guys open. They don't have guys that are bigger and faster than, than anybody. Everything that you see on the offensive side of the ball is scheme, and 
that all that credit goes to Kyle Shanahan. Now, there's one part of his game that I really think he needs to improve on, and that's situational play calling. And time after time, you see Kyle Shanahan at the end of the half really flub the play calls and flub drives. And I say that because you look at the Detroit game at the end of the half where Jimmy almost took a safety in the, in the, in the end zone and they gave them three points. And you look at what they've done against, uh, you know, against Minnesota as well. Like they could have run the clock out and the, and they did it. Minnesota ended up uh, almost getting points in, in that game as well. Flash forward to last week against LA. And by the way, if I said San Diego at all, I apologize because you know what? It's, it's to me, they should still be in San Diego. Like if you saw the game and you saw how many 49ers fans were there, it was literally like a home game. It's a freaking joke that the Chargers can't draw more people than than they actually do to play in LA. Like they should have never moved. The Spanos family, like I can't believe how greedy that family is. They should have stayed in San Diego. That was a really good football town. They had a, a, a really good following of fans down there, and they they it was a money grab, and they went to LA. So to me, that's that's why I may say San Diego every once in a while because I believe they really should be in San Diego. So apologies for that. But the LA Chargers, really, when when they got the ball at the end of the half and it was like, I believe it was just about 40, just over 40 seconds left. And I'm, I'm like, well, they have two timeouts. They're going to, they're, they're going to go for it. If they get a good return and they got three points out of that. Now that could have been avoided. And that's one of those moments in the game that the 49ers were up. I believe it was 17 to six with about five minutes left. They were up by 11 points. Now the Chargers got that touchdown and and two point conversion to make it 17-14. Okay, fine. You still have the lead. There's 47 seconds left on the clock. And they while they may still have two timeouts, you basically your job is to go into halftime with that lead because that means that you did not blow an 11 point lead in 5 minutes in, in, at the end of the half. You want to be able to take that momentum into the half and be able to have your team feeling good about leading a game at half, which which they've only done in one other game this year. Instead, Kyle Shanahan went, uh, he went pass, 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 uh, and the last completion was to Brito, and he got out of bounds. And, um, well, the middle completion was Brito, and then the, there was an incompletion to, to stop the clock. So what really happened was then the Chargers get the ball back. They have two, two timeouts. Uh, Niners have to kick it away, and the 49ers have to pick the worst time to have a special teams breakdown and give up a, a big return. All of that could have been avoided. And, and again, I put this out on Twitter and I took a lot of heat from a lot of people about this, but you have to play the percentages when you're, when you're not a good football team. And the 49ers right now are not a good football team. They're getting there, but they're not there yet. And you have to play, and this is not playing not to lose. There were four other teams that did this exact same thing on the weekend. Three of them won. And the 49ers were the fifth and obviously they lost. And what I'm talking about is when you get the ball with less than a minute left, and you are inside of your own 35 you have to run the clock out. You have to, you cannot, it doesn't, or either you run the clock out or you make that the op- opposition use all their timeouts. So we're, we're sitting in a scenario where the 49ers get the ball back at the 25 yard line with 47 seconds left. LA has two timeouts left. The 49ers, I believe had all three at that point. That at that point, you need to, you need to start running the ball and, and run the clock out. If you somehow break off a big run and you're at the 50, then you start using your timeouts and then you start throwing the ball then you start going into no huddle. But if you're at your own 25 and you don't, and you, and you 
are leading the game and your defense cannot stop anybody, you have to run the clock out. You have to make them use their timeouts. Here's what I would have done. First play would have been a run. San Diego uses a timeout. We're down to about uh, 45 or 44 seconds because it takes a couple of play- seconds to run a play. Second down, run the ball. San Diego takes their second, their second timeout. We're down to about 40 seconds. Okay. So it's third down now and about 40 to 41 seconds left. You kneel, let the clock run. And regardless of whether the clock is still running before, uh, before you hit fourth down or not, all you have to do is when you get the ball on fourth down, if, the clock, if there's still a couple of seconds left on the clock, there's a difference between the play clock and the game clock, all you have to do is kick it out of bounds because the hang time of the punt will elapse and, the, and literally they will not have any time to even catch the ball because the ball's out of bounds, the half is over. Even if you want to kick it inbounds, Chances are he's either going to let it bounce, not return it, or fair catch it because they don't want to. They don't want to take a chance of having somebody injured or whatever. Whatever the play may be, just make the tackle on the return. They didn't do that. They gave up that big return. The Chargers had two timeouts. They did not make them waste their timeouts. They used those timeouts, kicked a field goal, tied the game. That did not lose the 49ers a game. I, I want to be clear with that. Did not lose the game because of that. But you blew an 11 point lead in five minutes and all of the momentum that you had in the first half is gone because the game is now 0-0. And that's one of those moments that you have to be able to coach better. You have to be able to run out the clock. And Kyle Shanahan after the game, I, I get it. I understand that you want to score points because you're, you're not that great of a team and you want to get as many, many points as possible. But at the same time, you have to understand your situation and it's risk versus reward. The risk far outweighed that reward. CJ could have thrown a pick six. He could have he could have fumbled the ball every time you every time you take a drop you drop back to pass. There's a risk, and when you're in your own territory at the end of a half, when the defense is basically pinning their ears back because they know that you're not going to throw deep because you don't have you you don't have any deep threats. Really, that just puts you in a bad position. I really I really think he mismanaged that, and I, I double down on my stance that you have to kneel and and end up running out the clock. And again, three other teams did that in the same position last week, and uh, and and they won. So it's not like I'm alone on this. There, there are other NFL teams and coaches that think about this. So you have to, you have to be prudent with these things. You have to know your situation. Another place where that, where they really, the, the game turned, in my opinion, was the, the Selick interception, like where it bounced off his chest plate and, and they, they took it back. And that's just bad luck. You have to catch the ball and it just ended up in the, in the Chargers guy's hands and, and they took it back. And it just really, you can't, you can't really afford to make those mistakes. So I'm hoping this week the 49ers clean that up. This is one of those games when the schedule came out, regardless of who the quarterback was, that I had the 49ers winning. It's Josh Rosen, rookie quarterback. Arizona's a rebuilding team. They don't have as many weapons as they used to. Obviously, the 49ers are on their backup quarterback with C.J. Beathard. It, it's just one of those games that they that they should win on paper because the opponent is is a lesser opponent, and I think I think that they will. But before we get to that, I want to get to I want to get to my game ball. Um, I'll, I, I'll just say Al will give his game ball to like the New York, the New York Yankees or something like that, like Aaron judge or some, some, some stuff like that. Cause he's a huge Yankees fan and they won and blah, blah, blah. So my game ball is going to go to CJ Beathard. And the reason why is because he played his guts out. Neither interception that he threw was his fault. The second one, he was trying to make a play and, and the offensive line got beat and it ended up in the hands of a, of a chargers player, but he played his guts out and he took several big hits. Several of them that I, I did not think that he would be able to get up from, and he did. And the fact that he shows that kind that kind of heart, it's inspiring for the team. It's inspiring for fans. It it, it makes you want to 
to follow that guy. It makes you want to have that guy lead you. So CJ gets my game ball. He's getting better with every every sort of play that he runs and every week that he's that he's playing. And I'm hoping that that they'll they'll be able to co- coax some wins out of him this year because he really he really deserves a better fate than he's getting right now. So game ball to CJ. Now on to this Arizona game. I really think that the 49ers have to know which games they have to win and know when they kind of have to really push to try to win a game. This is one of those games where it's going to be interesting to see where you're, you are going up against an inferior, what should be an inferior opponent. Let's see how they handle this game. Are they going to be overconfident and sloppy and really just not paying attention to detail? Or are these guys going to come in and, and really just be fundamentally sound and win this game? So I really think the key to this game is going to be keeping CJ clean and getting the ball out of his hands. Um, they have to tackle better. Obviously, that's that's an obvious one. They have to be able to get to Rosen. If they let him just hang in a pocket and be comfortable all game, he's going to shred them. And that goes for any quarterback. But he again, he is a young quarterback. He's a rookie. You have to be able to have guys buzzing around him all the time. And I think that the, the pass rush will be key. If they can if they can get three or four sacks on him, I think he's going to have a long day. And I think that the defense will really kind of settle into a, a nice rhythm. Otherwise, this is going to be one of those games where it's going to be another close game. Uh, the 49ers in the last four games against the Cardinals at Levi's are one and three. And I believe the last one, the last win was, was when Harbaugh in, in, in his last game um, of the 2014 season. So this is one of those games where it should be, it should be a, a good test for them to see how far they've come. Because even with this rebuilding team, I feel like they, their roster is better than many other rosters out there. And you should be able to win certain games on the schedule, this being one of them. So I'm going to predict the 49ers win. I'm going to say that they, that they've been scoring points. That's not the issue. They've definitely been scoring points. So I'm going to say they're going to win, win the game 27 to 20 and Rosen will throw a, a meaningless touchdown in the end to make it. I don't think this, this is going to be one of those like knockdown, drag it out like six, three games. There'll be points scored, but really it's just going to come down to which team can execute better. So 27, 29 ers win. They'll go to two and three on the season and hopefully all the fans at Candlestick can can leave happy. Speaking of the fans, shout out to the fans for showing up in LA last week, making that stadium a 49er stadium, almost like a home game. It was loud for the Niners. There, there wasn't very loud for the Chargers. So props to all of you guys and girls for showing up. And I love seeing it on TV. I love seeing all that red out there. Bring that same energy this weekend at Levi's. Get the team a win. It helps to make noise at the stadium. Obviously, you can control the game. It adds another layer of an advantage, and this team needs every advantage it can get. So hopefully uh, the fans show up this weekend. It doesn't matter. you still got to show up, still got to play out the season, still got to support the team, right? So go out there, be good fans, be safe, and and uh, support them no matter what, win or lose. So I, I, have to, I have to close with this. It's obviously baseball playoff time, and I'm a huge baseball fan. And I'm not making it about myself, but I just I have to close with this because the the A's lost to the Yankees, and this is not a, a game that I thought the A's would win. But it was just it's just funny to me because it kind of goes back to what the 49ers I want the 49ers to avoid. But I'll explain what the A's are doing right now. So for those of you who aren't baseball fans or A's fans, what the A's basically are is a small market team. Their their total payroll is like sixty million dollars for the entire season. By by comparison. The Boston Red Sox are up over 200 million, almost 300 million for the season for their their payroll. So the A's payroll is minuscule. What they do is they find undervalued players and they sign them to starters starter level contracts, and they get big. They hope that those players will overperform. When they do, 
they'll maybe get like a playoff run or two out of those players. And then they flip them for more prospects for their, their minor league system. Right. So it's this constant churn of players in and out of the organization because they don't have the the monetary assets to be able to, to pay for the the elite talent. And I dispute that because I feel like that the owner does, and that's a discussion for another forum another time. But really what I want the 49ers to avoid is that same sort of uh, cycle where you are paying players that, are role players like starters and you're hoping that they'll overachieve because what you're getting right now is, is what you have with the 49ers roster. They're not a bad roster, but you're relying on a lot of guys to take that next step up. And when that happens, if those guys don't take that next step up, your team suffers. And the ideal thing for me, the way to build the roster would be to get role players that you want to make that next step up, but have solid veterans or starters in front of them or, fill in these these role player roles with role players as opposed to like hey we're going to we're going to take a guy who's never started full time before and he's going to be our starting running back right that's no slight against Jerick McKinnon but he's never been starting running back right so you're you're asking him to make a big leap and the more more you do that the more you you add unknowns to your team and i think that when you want to build a roster you want to go after guys that are known known commodities because then you can build around those guys and right now there's a lot of flux in the 49ers roster and it just it kind of reminds me of the A's with the way that they're building they're saving a lot of cap room and they're like okay well eventually we'll go after free agents but I, I really hope that that they realize that they can they can build around certain players on this team and, the, and that they do have some cornerstone pieces here so piss at the A's loss to the Yankees and Al and I never made a bet so um, I'm off the hook so I'm happy about that um, and uh, if you guys Want to give me a follow? It's at Zane49ers, at Z-A-I-N-49ers on Twitter. Uh, find us on SoundCloud. Find us on uh, iTunes. You can find us on 49ers WebZone um, website under podcasts. And buy a t-shirt. There's a t-shirt banner there. They're really cool. Support the, support the 49ers WebZone. We will hopefully have some um, big news. I'll tease this. Have some, have some news for you guys in the next coming weeks um, about the show. And um, hopefully that all comes to fruition and, and we can give you guys some good news. So for Al Sacco, this is Zane Nackby and it's been another episode of the 49ers Web Zone No Huddle Podcast. Go Niners.